Our scripture reading today is Daniel 4, uh, and you can find it on page 431 of your paper Bibles. If you do not have a paper Bible uh, or Bible, please take one home with you today. Uh, I was also told this is a very long passage, so if you um, want, if you're wanting to sit down, um, that's a long passage, so. King Nebuchadnezzar-Nebuchadnezzar-Nebuchadnezzar-Nebuchadnezzar-Nebuchadnezzar-Nebuchadnezzar-Nebuchadnezzar-Nebuchadnezzar-Nebuchadnezzar-
reached to, the, to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which all food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its root roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field let him be wet with the dew of heaven and let the portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him this is the interpretation O king it is a decree of the most high which has come upon my lord the king that you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field you shall be made to eat grass like an ox and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the most high rules the kingdom of god and gives it to whom he will and as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed and there may be perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon King, thank you, at the end of the 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, it is not this great Babylon which I have built by the mighty power as a royal residence of the glory of my majesty. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O king, Nep Thank you, sorry. Um, and to it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and, shall, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He, has driven, he was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet in the dew of heaven till his hair drew as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like birds' claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the end at the same time, my, re my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought to me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol the honor of the king of heaven, and for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. This is the word of the Lord. I, you know, I got to tell you, uh, I didn't exactly say that to me. What I said was, you can tell everybody to sit down if they want to, and then we'll know who the weak people are. <laughs> yeah, but that was long, and y'all did great. Uh, you know, I got to, I think I got to start by telling you that uh, this passage threw me for a loop. Uh, this was not the sermon that I was expecting to preach um, you know, even a, even a week ago when I was beginning uh, to, to ser uh, seriously study it. 
Um, I, you know, I, I probably started, you know, by looking at the end. And I think that was what was influencing the most where Nebuchadnezzar says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of Heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. And I, uh, I sort of started with the assumption that that was the point of the passage. Um, but I was mistaken about that. And, and studying it in depth, it didn't take long to figure out that that uh, was a mistake. Uh, the passage actually tells us right in the middle exactly what the point is. Uh, you know, this thing about humbling the proud, it's a principle in the story. It does happen in the story. And Nebuchadnezzar's lesson is a lesson that all of us can benefit from. But verse 17, let's just, I mean, let's just go straight to it. What's the point of this passage? Right there, verse 17. Right, This is the, the watcher in the dream speaking. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end, that is, to the purpose, that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets, it, uh, sets over it the lowliest of men. That's the point of the passage. The point of the passage is that all the living, all the living may know that, that the Lord, that the Most High, that the king of heaven is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to whomever he will. Uh, I mean, is that not a, a timely message for us this month, this year? Um, you know, I know the, a lot of us are uh, anxious about the prospect of a Clinton presidency uh, and think that that could be a, a horrible thing for the country. And a lot of us are pretty anxious about the prospect of a Trump presidency and think that that, that, that could be a horrible thing for the country. Uh, and the fact of the matter is, God is telling us in this passage that he is in control. He is reminding us that he is the one who puts people in charge of kingdoms and nations. I mean, in, in our system of government, you know, of course, that the president is not the highest authority in the land. Right? The electorate is. So the electorate that selected these two candidates was put in place and in power by the Most High. Uh, and whichever of these ministers uh, this electorate chooses to represent us in that office uh, is also going to be by the sovereign choice of the Lord. And that's the message of this passage. The living is plural there. This, this passage is not about Nebuchadnezzar. He's, he features, he learns something, we all can learn something from what he learns. But he's not the point. He's not the primary audience. This whole episode of God humbling him and cutting him off and, and taking away his reason and casting him out into, the, uh, into the, the, the fields like a beast of the field, all of that happens not primarily for his benefit, but for everybody else's benefit. Okay. The secondary message uh, isn't even primarily about pride. Right? It's about oppression. Um, when Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar to repent, the first thing he tells him is not to repent of his pride, but to uh, repent of his oppressing the weak. That's the primary message for Nebuchadnezzar. 
And he does that because he is arrogant. And so that features too. Okay. So let's just dig right into the narrative here. I mean, I ultimately settled on reading the whole passage. One, because, you know, come on, we're grown-ups. And the other, because it's, uh, it, it really hangs together as a story. And we really need to talk about the whole thing to understand any of it clearly. So I think the first observation we want to make in here is that at the start of this story, um, Nebuchadnezzar has a guilty conscience. He is not feeling good. Now, how do I know that? Okay. Remember, uh, we got to contrast this dream with the first. Remember two chapters ago, he has that dream that disturbs him. It's about the, the statue with the head of gold and the chest of silver and the torso of bronze and the legs of iron and the feet of clay and iron and the boulder comes down, barreling down the mountain and smashes it to bits. Um, and he tells his ministers and his magicians and his Chaldeans and his soothsayers and his astrologers, you have to tell me the dream and the interpretation so that I will know that you are telling me the truth. Because he doesn't trust that they're going to, uh, that they really are able to interpret it. Um, funnily enough, he doesn't have that doubt this time. He's not worried that they're not going to be able to interpret this one. Uh, why? I think... I think the dream is pretty obvious. I think Nebuchadnezzar knows what it means when he first has the dream. He's not looking for somebody to explain it to him. He's looking for somebody to explain it away. He's looking for somebody to give him some good news in what looks like really bad news. I mean, look. Okay, listen. If this were just a, a parable or a fable that I told you, I said once upon a time, there was a tree that grew up to the heights of heaven and had tremendous, bountiful fruit, and uh, it was visible all over the world. The whole earth could see it, and beasts and birds from all over the, uh, the earth would come and rest in its shade and make nests in its branches. Uh, and then a, uh, an angel came and said, cut down this tree. And let him, not it, let this, tr like trees get wet from the dew of heaven, let him be wet with the dew of heaven and let him lose his reason. Trees don't have reason. Like, it's clearly a person in the dream. You know already it's a person just from the dream. It doesn't take astrology to tell you that it's a person. It doesn't take magic. Uh, I mean, any astrologers, magicians here? I mean, I think, like, like, I think we get it without needing any of that. Um, and if we get it, Nebuchadnezzar got it. He knew that this was about him. There's, there was no, there's no one else that it could be. He is the most powerful emperor known to the world at the time. His empire and his power uh, extended far beyond anything that had ever been accomplished, uh, at least in that region of the world. There's no other tree, as it were, uh, that has the, the, the scope and the power and the influence uh, and the, the wealth, the fruit and the provision that he's able to offer. It's clearly him. He's got to know it. Right? The tree is obviously a person. If it's a person, it's obviously the most powerful person on earth, earth. And the person in the dream loses all of his power, even loses his mind, and some expression of his humanity. There's no one it can be other than Nebuchadnezzar. No one else on earth could be a tree that reaches to heaven. No one else has so many people who trust in him for protection and provision. 
the way that the beasts and the birds do to this large tree in the dream. Secondly, you know, second reason we, uh, I think we can know that he is beginning this with a guilty conscience is look at his behavior. First three chapters of this book have established that Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego are the go-to people for this sort of thing. If you want some kind of interpretation, you want some kind of wisdom, he even he says it over and over again in this in this chapter, in this story, Nebuchadnezzar says how uh, the, he knows that the spirit of the holy gods live in Daniel. Why not start there? Right? You're the king. Why not just start with your chief magician, your chief wise man? Why not start there? Because he knows, and he doesn't, he's afraid of what Daniel's going to tell him. I'm convinced of this. He starts with these other magicians because he's hoping that he's gonna, that they're gonna be able to spin it in some way that's gonna make it good news. And thirdly, look at their behavior. If you and I and all of us in this room know what this dream meant, they knew what it meant. They could easily have told him. And they don't. Why not? Because they're afraid. They know what it means. And this is the most powerful man in the world. And pretty much my job is to make him feel good about himself. Give him good advice when I can, but mostly in order to save my own neck, I want to spin everything I can in a way that's going to make him feel good about himself. Uh, this is what astrologers and, and wise men and prophets, false prophets in the Bible, have always done in every civilization. We have records of this from all over the world. Of you know, so-called prophets, so-called wise men and magicians, mostly what they do is they tell the king what he wants to hear. They give them, they give them good advice when they can, but everything that they do for the sake of their own skin, for the sake of their own prosperity, uh, they're telling him what he wants to hear. Um, we see this in the Old Testament, the false prophets uh, with the kings of Israel, um, and we see it from civilizations all over the world. And by the way, we see it today too. Uh, I mean, I mean, I don't know if you read a horoscope. I hope that you don't. Why don't do that? Um, but if you ever pick one up and read it, there's no bad news. Like as bad as the news gets for all, like all twelve of the horoscopes, as bad as it will ever get is you may face a particular challenge today or this week or this month. Um, and it and it might be a little hard, but stick to it, and it's gonna and you can turn it into an opportunity. That's the hallmark of a false prophet, astrologer, this kind of a person. That's what they do. Uh, in fact, listen, can I call a little sidebar? Come on, come on over here for a minute. You have these people in your life. Uh, maybe you know them personally. But more likely, they're the authors of books that you read. They are uh, television personalities uh, and preachers of various kinds. Um, they are, if, if the, the Christian books that you read are only telling you things that make you feel good about yourself, if that's all they're doing, if there's no bad news, uh, think about the likelihood of that, first of all, that there could be no bad news ever. And then understand that this is what these people do for a living. They're just like Nebuchadnezzar's astrologers. All right. Just take a look at what they're telling you. 
if all they have is good news and then, oh, maybe there's a challenge, but you can turn it into an opportunity. If that's all they have for you, uh, then this is probably uh, the kind of prophet, the kind of soothsayer that they are. Okay, end sidebar. Come on, Bob. Okay. So Nebuchadnezzar knows that this dream is about him. He knows it's bad news. Uh, his astrologers and his wise men and his magicians and his Chaldeans, they are refusing to say anything because they know it's bad news and they don't want to get in trouble. So finally he comes to Daniel. And Daniel tells it to him straight. Uh, Daniel tells him what the rest of us already know, what he himself already knows. This is bad news and it's bad news for you. Right? This watcher that comes down from the heavens, right? it's a messenger of God. And it's saying that you are going to be cut off. You are going to lose your reason. You are going to lose your kingdom. You are going to lose all of your majesty and splendor and all of the the power that you have amassed. You're going to lose it all. You know, and only, and this is key, we'll come back to this, only the stump and roots will remain. And then, you know, the final thing that I think tells us that what Daniel tells him to do is repent in verse 27. And take a look there. He says, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. One of the things that's underneath this is a is a thread that runs throughout the whole of Scripture, um, that God has created humanity uh, with reason and with uh, the power and dominion that they have over the lesser creatures of the earth in order to love the world the way that God does, uh, in order to uh, demonstrate to the world that the character of God. And anybody like Nebuchadnezzar who amasses more power than that, has a responsibility to use it that way. But Nebuchadnezzar has been oppressing people. He has been doing it his entire career. And what Daniel is telling him is, this is your opportunity. You need to stop oppressing. You need to break off your sins. You need to understand that the power that you have You didn't do it to yourself. The skill with which you built this empire, even, was given to you by God. Not to mention uh, the circumstances and the battles that went your way that ultimately led you to where you are. And because you have forgotten that, uh, you have, with a clear conscience, been oppressing people all over the earth. And this is your opportunity to repent. Notice that he doesn't tell him principally to repent of his pride. He tells him to break off his oppression. That's the sin that's bringing judgment on Nebuchadnezzar. He was an oppressor. uh, He was an oppressor. He was rooted in arrogance. But as the story shows, the specific sinful actions that are bringing this on him is his oppression. That brings us uh, 
to the you know to the central point um, that the problem here is that people are trusting in Nebuchadnezzar for salvation. The message here is not primarily for him. The message here is primarily for everybody else who has been trusting in him. That all the living may know that Nebuchadnezzar is not a basket to put your eggs in. You need to know that it's the Most High God who has been in control of Nebuchadnezzar's career the whole way. That every, every iota of power that Nebuchadnezzar has has been given to him by God. You need to know that, and you need to be looking to the right uh, person. You need to be looking to the right king. Uh, because if your hope is in this guy, I can cut him down in a second, and you will lose everything. This is not a tree that you want to make a home under. This is not a tree that you want to make a nest in the branches of. It may look good. The fruit may be delicious. There may be a lot of it but it can be gone like that because I'm in control. I mean, I think one of the things that that really uh, forces us to think about is why. What is the problem with trusting in kings? Why are kings dangerous to trust in? I mean, I think the first thing that the uh, passage tells us is, is dangerous to trust in kings because they might oppress you. All of those people who are trusting in Nebuchadnezzar, uh, he's also oppressing them. All of that prosperity is coming at a price. Look, I mean, let's talk about our presidency. You gotta watch that show House of Cards. I'm afraid that that's what it's really like. If you haven't seen that, uh, you know, all just it's about politicians in Washington, and they are all dirty. You know, like nobody has gotten to that level of politics without getting dirty. Nobody has. Uh, I, nobody. You can't do it. And I'll go this far. I don't think anyone even runs for president out of the goodness of their heart. There was a there was a, a tweet that Catherine read me uh, last week. Someone saying how uh, Donald Trump is not a public servant. He's a self-servant. True. I mean, I'm sorry. It's true. But nobody at that level is a public servant. They're all self-servants. That's how they got there. Nobody got there by working at the soup kitchen. If they were really public servants, if that's what they were really after, they wouldn't, it wouldn't have occurred to them to say, what I could, you know what I could do? I would be able to help the world a lot more if I just had more power. That's not what occurs to you when you're a public servant. When you are actually caring about loving people and taking care of them. That's not what occurs to you. Amassing power to yourself is just not what occurs to you. No one conquers an empire out of altruism. They might oppress you, they also might oppress someone else. And this is another reason that kings are very dangerous, and this might be more dangerous than the first thing. They might oppress somebody else in your name. They might oppress somebody else in a way that benefits you and seduces you, and you become the oppressor. You become the beneficiary of violence and oppression. And then you're guilty. You are complicit. If your country has gotten rich by oppressing people, 
that wealth that you had. You, you may not have been involved. It might have been generations ago, but the wealth that you have has come from it. And that should make us afraid if that's the case. That's more dangerous than being oppressed yourself. Because then, you know, you run the risk of being the tree that gets chopped down. When God wants to make his point. But the final thing, the real thing, the real reason that kings are dangerous to trust in, they will always, always fall. Every time. There has not yet been an empire that has lasted the millennia that they want to last. It doesn't happen. Regime change happens. Kings die. They get assassinated. They get conquered from another king from outside. It happens over and over and over. And everybody always thinks they're going to be the last one. Every empire always thinks mine will be the empire that lasts for, 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 for the rest of time. Um, brothers and sisters, uh, if you're worried that this election might be the downfall of America, maybe you're right. Uh, but maybe we would be blessed to be the generation that sees it because we could benefit from it the way that the generation of Nebuchadnezzar benefited from seeing his downfall. We could be the generation that gets to see firsthand and be reminded that God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to whomever he will. We could be the ones who are reminded of that. This thing about them being trees is actually a theme that happens in Scripture a lot. Um, if you want to look at uh, Ezekiel 31 sometime, both Assyria and Egypt... This is, this is back, you think about the story of the Bible, right? The nation of Israel uh, is established in their, uh, in their land, um, and then pretty quickly they start to sin, and God starts to threaten that he's going to, you know, look. And, it, and also, it was, one of the repeated things was oppression, immorality, various kinds, breaking God's law. Uh, God keeps telling him, you got to shape up, you got to shape up, you got to shape up. If you don't, there's going to be judgment. And then there is. And when the judgment starts to happen, uh, the Israelites, the kings of Israel, start to look to Egypt and Assyria, these two nations, great nations that are on either side of them, for help. When things start to go south, they start to look to these other two nations for protection. And God tells them, don't do that. And one of the ways that he does it, he says that, these, that Assyria and Egypt uh, in Ezekiel 31 are like great cedars. Pharaoh is like a great cedar, and the beasts and the birds come and rest in his branches. But he's going to be cut down. So this is a thing that happens in Scripture. The empires always fall. The tree is always cut down every time. In fact, uh, if you want to take a quick look, turn if you want to, but Isaiah 11 We'll talk about this more in a minute. Isaiah 11 alludes to the fact that even the king of Israel himself, the dynasty of Israel, David's own dynasty, who was supposed to be the, the conduit uh, and the line through whom uh, the, the salvation of the world was to come, that that dynasty was cut down and left 
as a stump and roots. Same image as Nebuchadnezzar being left as a stump and roots. So if the point of this passage is for the living to know that God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men, who is he really talking to? He's talking to the Israelites who have just had their king cut down and left as a stump and roots. He, this is, the point here is for, is comfort for the exiles that the cutting down of their king and their dynasty was something that God was in control of for his purposes and glory and their good. And the king that they are now under the heel of was set up by God for his own glory and their good. It's in verse 15 that Nebuchadnezzar is going to be left as a stump and roots. And it's in Isaiah 11.1 that alludes that the king of Israel was left as stump and roots. This is why all the living need to hear this message. This is why especially Israel needed to hear this message. There, the oppressive, wicked king whose boot you're licking, he is subject to me and my whims. And you can take comfort in that, and you can also be sobered by it. Your own kings have been cut down and left as nothing but a stump and roots, and this king is going to be cut down and left as nothing but a stump and roots. Make sure, he is saying, that you are trusting and fearing me and not in the human kings. And that presses the question upon us. Right? Nebuchadnezzar's long gone. But who are the kings that you are trusting in? Whose branches are you nesting in? Are you nesting in Donald Trump's branches? Are you nesting in Hillary Clinton's branches? Are you resting in the branches of the Constitution of the United States? Are you resting in the branches uh, of your career and your job? Are you resting in the branches of your salary? Are you resting in the branches of the money that you don't have? Is your poverty and your lack of money causing you to love money and lust for it and, having, and allowing it to rule your life? Is it your marriage that you're trusting in the branches of? Is it your children, your, your posterity and your future? Is it your, your work, your art? What are you trusting in the branches of? What are you leaning to for comfort, for provision? When I thought that this passage was going to be about pride, uh, I started listening to, the, to one of those last Johnny Cash songs. Um, I think it was from his last album, released posthumously. Um, the song's called God's Gonna Cut You Down. And I was trying to, I was actually trying to convince Catherine to do it for the offertory. <laughs> she wouldn't do it. But, I mean, you know she would have tore it up, right? I'm just saying. Uh, but this song, Johnny Cash sings, he says, he says, go tell that uh, midnight rider Go tell that long-tongued liar, tell the rambler, the gambler, the backbiter, tell them that God's going to cut them down. And man, it was getting me excited. God's going to cut you down. And that, you know, it turns out is not primarily the point of this passage. But this is an election year. And that is a message for every candidate. Sooner or later, as the song says, sooner or later, God will cut you down. So, on the one hand, 
this can be sobering to us, that if you're trusting in our political system and you're trusting in any of these candidates to save you, sooner or later God will cut them down. But it could also be comfort to you that if you're looking at the field and you're worried about how it's going to shake out, sooner or later God will cut them down. Go tell that long-tongued liar, sooner or later God will cut him down. Just like Nebuchadnezzar. What does that leave us with? What kind of hope does that leave us with? If we can't hope in kings, if we can't hope in our political system, if we can't hope in our families, our futures, or our money, our jobs, our government, we can't hope in any of these things. Where is he directing our hope? Well, on one hand, he's fairly obviously calling us to look to him. But it's a little more deep than that, a little more beautiful than that. And so now go ahead and, and take a real look at Isaiah 11. Remember that in verse 15 of, of Daniel 4, he says that uh, Nebuchadnezzar is going to be left as a stump and roots. Isaiah, speaking of the kings of Israel. Remember, Jesse is David's father. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. The righteousness, righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. And you want to talk about peace for the beasts of the field. The wolf, in verse 6, shall lie down with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow shall, and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. It's a metaphor. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters are, cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar. Shinar, that's where Babylon is, that's where these exiles are. From Hamath, from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and he will assemble the banished of Israel, and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. 
The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart, and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim, but they shall swoop down on the shoulders of the Philistines in the west, and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them, and the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt. And he will wave his hand over the river, and the scorching of his breath. And it will strike the seven channels, and will lead people across in sandals. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant and remains of his people, as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. Oh, man. We want to talk about a stump and roots that gets restored. The prophecy of Isaiah is that the dynasty of David will be restored. The restoration of Nebuchadnezzar is only a foretaste of the restoration of that will come in the line of David. Nebuchadnezzar's journey, right, being lifted up with pride, being offered the kingdoms of the world and seizing them, and then being cut off, and then being restored, and once again being a place where the beasts and the birds can come and rest, is only a foretaste of the restoration of the stump and the roots and the shoot that will come out of those from the line of Jesse, from the line of David. Because this, this is the Lord Jesus. This is his path. He has offered the nations of the world. Do you remember the story? That he is, that the story is that Satan comes to him and offers him, you can have all, I will give you all of the nations of the world if you just bow to me. But unlike Nebuchadnezzar, Jesus says no. He's not lifted up with pride. And so, unlike Nebuchadnezzar, he is not cut off for his pride. He is cut off for our pride. When Jesus is cut down like a tree, he's cut down for our iniquity, for our oppression. that he is restored. And when he is restored, he becomes, as he, as he said himself, like a tiny mustard seed that has grown into a great tree that the birds of the sky come and rest in. Jesus was cut off for your pride so that you would not be as Nebuchadnezzar was. And when Jesus was raised, you know, when Nebuchadnezzar was, was reestablished, you'll notice that his kingdom is not still around. He was cut off again. His kingdom was handed over to another emperor again. His restoration was only temporary. But when Jesus was raised, he established an unshakable kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar was impressed with his own kingdom. Jesus' kingdom is unimpressive. Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom must be held by fear and violence. Jesus' kingdom grows stronger the more it is oppressed by violence. Nebuchadnezzar, uh, his kingdom goes to the Medes and the the Persians, ultimately. But Jesus' kingdom is eternal, and all 
of the kingdoms of the earth will be united in that Messiah. As a king, Jesus does not press us down and rob us blind. He's the only king who is both powerful and self-giving. He's the only king who gives himself to nourish and sustain us. He's the only king whose branches we can really rest in. He's proven it in history. And he offers himself here to us now in this meal. Let's go to the table.